Book. Movie. Game. Are you for real? Absolutely. <laughs> hey, this is Book Movie Game, and this is Jen with Glasses. This is Russ, and today we have a very special guest for you, the lovely and talented Sarah Jane. Hello. Uh, what I love about Sarah Jane is that she's always got her fingers in about five different projects, whether it's making costumes, going to conventions, uh, her awesome Tumblr, uh, Supernatural Pop, which was so good that it actually made me get into the Supernatural show just so I could get the jokes on this Tumblr. It's amazing. Check it out. Sarah Jane, Supernatural Pop on Tumblr. Uh, today we have some books, some movies, and some games for you. We're all going to go over some. We're going to start today with Jen. Hey, my first book is Farm City, which is kind of a memoir. It's a couple of different things. It talks about, I, I'm a memoir junkie, as you guys know, and I love them. It, Novella Carpenter, which doesn't she have the best first name, Novella? That's such a cool first name. She basically, her parents were hippies, and they tried to do the back to the farm thing back in the 70s. It kind of went terribly wrong. Her dad ended up moving to the woods permanently, and uh, her mom eventually ended up selling the farm and moving to the city. It was just like, this is not a good idea. But as an adult, Novella really loves kind of agriculture and farming, but she also lives in Oakland. So she works at a nursery, and but her dream is to do farming stuff. So even when they have like a tiny apartment, she's like dealing with bunnies in her room, like all kinds of things. So they move to this new apartment in downtown Oakland, and there's basically an empty abandoned lot like behind their apartment complex. And she decides she's going to make this into a farm. And she does not know who owns this lot. She has no idea who, where, what it is. It's filled with broken glass. They clean it up, and she starts to make it into a farm. So she starts to plant things on it. She just, I, she's so hilarious because she talks about a lot of like really funny things. Like she went from being like a vegan to to actually putting two pigs on the abandoned lot <laughs> in the middle of Oakland and learning how to make prosciutto. So it's a really interesting journey. Her relationship with the other residents that live there, with the homeless guy that lives in front of their building, just the whole idea of like where we get our food and, and how it works and how unusual it is, you know, to grow food in a city. Super interesting. She's hilarious. One of my favorite things is she just decides in a whim to get a bo the homesteaders. It's called the homesteaders blessing or the homesteaders pride, which is basically she got a box with like two baby geese, two baby ducks, like two baby turkeys. And she's trying to raise these things and they're like running all over Oakland. So there's like, like there's all this trash and like one street over all this gang violence. And she's like chasing this turkey down the street, trying to get it to come back because it has like overflown its fencing. So it's super interesting just about her relationship with her boyfriend and how when she tries to eat only from her garden and she gets very little food, she gets super grumpy. And if you're really interested in kind of like the back to farming movement and sort of the urban farming movement, it's not a really a primer um, because she makes some horrible, horrific mistakes. But also it just really makes you think about how much work it is to do something like that and how there's this ideal from blo like farming blogs of like beautiful pastures and happy animals and you know where your food's coming from. And then like the reality of like... We have to feed these pigs and we're going to go dumpster diving at the bakery to pull out all of this like bread. And we're going to go to the, to the behind the Chinese restaurant because they have all these fish heads that our pigs are going to eat. And like the reality of like doing that compared to like this idyllic ideal we have of like urban farming. So it's super interesting. The book's uh, Farm City, The Education of an Urban Farmer. And it's by Novella Carpenter. And I highly recommend it. And it's super, super entertaining. Yeah, you know, I remember Jen telling me about this book and I thought it was super interesting. And then I realized... Like, I didn't notice at first she said Oakland. 
Oakland. I'm like, Oakland, California? I couldn't believe the stuff that she was doing, like, basically in this back alley in Oakland with pigs and geese and turkeys. is ridiculous. And she's basically squatting, like, not in her apartment, but on this piece of land because she doesn't really know who owns it. Eventually, the owner kind of shows up, which is kind of interesting, too. Well, that's the only part of the story <laughs> that's not that fantastic. That happens all the time in Oakland. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just sort of interesting, her kind of personality where she just kind of feels like, well, no one else is using it, and I want to use it. And so she's using it. So it's very interesting um, and fun. And it is Oakland, so it's kind of hilarious. Like, she grows lettuce for the Black Panthers. Like, they have an after-school program. And so she's, like, a white lady. So she's like, is this a problem if I bring you guys my extra lettuce for your after-school program for their for their after-school snack? And they're totally cool with her. But it's just funny, like, the kind of interactions she has that you don't think of, like, typical farming interactions. You know, like, the kind of errands that she runs that you don't think. When you think of, like, the 19. 19- 50s farmer sitting on his tractor like puttering around you know you don't think of putting on a headlamp and basically dumpster diving behind this fancy italian restaurant because they have the best like leftover bread and meat pieces like what and running away because the you know what is it called not the who's in charge of the restaurant like not the wait wait who's in charge of the wait staff what is that called i can't think of it right now the head chef no like the not the hostess but like who's the person the maitre d' Yes, the maitre d' like chases you out and threatens just to call the police. Out culinary terms like, what are you one. doing, dumpster diving in our dumpster line with headlamps on? It looks very suspicious in the middle of Oakland. <laughs> like you're diving in, but it's a super interesting book, and I highly recommend it. I could probably talk till I'm blue in the face about farm sustainability, and I think it's really interesting. But I like the aspect of uh, involving the community so much, and how much the neighbors were involved in this project, whether good or bad. But it's not something you really explore a lot. And the fact that it happened in a city, it makes sense that there had to be so much involvement. Well, it's really interesting because some of her neighbors are horrified because there's stinky animals like close to them. Some of them are really like a lot of them are from more agrarian cultures where they do that. So they're they're much more accepting of like, oh, you have chickens and oh, you have this there. Like because that's their normal, like in the cities where they come from, that's what people do. So that was super interesting. It was funny about... Like, there's people who are being like, well, you should be 100% vegan, and you should just make it a petting zoo. And she's like, who's going to pay for these animals? She's like, I'm working two jobs. My boyfriend works two jobs. These are for feeding me, and that's why. And so that was an interesting stance for her to take, too, which I thought was... So she's like, she would get it from both sides. She would get it from people who felt she should be running, like, an animal shelter. People who were like, why are these animals here? They're just smelly. And then kind of people who... And there's people who just specifically got it. And one of the most interesting programs that she was indirectly involved in was um, there's this group that basically started teaching people in the inner city how to have like backyard chickens because it's so hard when you're in the city and there's limited transportation they don't have grocery stores on every block and so there was a huge program in Oakland to like get people started on doing gardening in their backyard but also having chickens in their backyard as a way of like having healthy food at your fingertips which I found super interesting like both the problems with doing that like the kind of things that come up when you do that sort of program but also the benefits of that and how how people really started once you start to incorporate that back in our life we're so divorced from like growing our own food most of the time that the idea of like oh we could save money by doing this and we could have healthier food and have something really close by we're just we don't even know how to get to that point anymore we're so far like we're so many generations behind having like a victory garden 
just the idea of like, oh, like, how do you do this needs to be retaught. And so I thought that was really cool, too. And she's just an interesting, she's such a quirky person. And her opinions on things definitely surprise you sometimes, like the directions she goes into. It's just really fun. So I, I really enjoyed it. Awesome. I have a book for you today. Actually, I have a super theme today because I love themes. This is the super themiest theme ever. Actually, I actually have 14 books for you today. The Wizard of Oz series by L. Frank Baum. <laughs> I know no one's ever heard of this series before, and only I can tell you about this. But it is an amazing series of books. And I've read, I have not read all 14, in full disclosure, I'm going to. I've, I'm more than halfway through the series, but I'm really enjoying it. Some really interesting things about the series is, first of all, it's a lot different than what we think of as the Wizard of Oz, like the movie. Uh, the movie actually took a lot of big departures from the book. The book is actually much more violent and a much more like Grimm's fairy tales kind of kid stories. And uh, I really, really enjoy them. So Frank Oz, actually, one of the funny things is he actually never went to Kansas. He based his stories of Kansas about droughts from South Dakota, which I thought was kind of interesting. But the funny thing about Frank L. Frank Baum is that he, he kept trying to stop writing the Oz series, but kids kept sending him, you know, thousands and thousands of letters to try to get him to write more Oz stories. But he was always trying to become known as a more serious novelist. In fact, in, in total, he actually wrote 55 novels and 800 short stories. But again, he's most known for the Wizard of Oz series. That is a lot of that is a lot of output. Like that is a lot of literary output. Yeah, he 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 was really kind of trying to. Get, it's it's so, so funny this happened so much. He was really trying to get away from that label of the Oz guy, but just never quite happened. And they're really good books. So I, I think it's the end of the fourth or fifth book. He basically said, "This is the end of Oz. No more." And then the sixth book. Since saying Oz ended, <laughs> I've received many letters. Begging me, pleading with me, please tell us what happened to Dorothy. And so he gave in, and uh, and it's to our benefit. And then the really cool thing is actually that, so the last book that he made was Glinda of Oz, number 14. He wrote it in 1919, but it was actually published uh, posthumously. It was published uh, the year after his death. And then the really cool thing is actually that his family commissioned an author to continue the stories. So actually number 15 through 33 are written by Ruth Plumley Thompson. Uh, the family actually, you know, gave her permission to keep writing. So technically there's 33 official Oz books, and I'm going to try to get through all of those. But the cool thing also for me is that there is a town called Toto, Indiana. I know Jen's been there with me. <laughs> I'm from Indiana originally. And that is actually the, the town that uh, L. Frank Baum based the name of the dog from, which was pretty cool. That's its claim to fame. Well, I know I picked up one of the series when I was a kid in the library. I really liked The Wizard of Oz, and I'd never written, written the book, or written the book. I'd never read the book. I didn't write the book. No, Alfred never, Baum wrote it. You didn't yeah, have to. Yeah, I know, really. So I'd never read the book before, and I really wanted to read it, and they didn't have the first book. They had another book of the series, and I pulled it off the shelf, and I read it, and I did enjoy it, but I didn't realize, like, how actually terrifying those books are. Like, there's scary things that happen in those books when you actually think about them. Just the way, like, the magic works and kind of how very unpredictable. And no one's really in control of anything. Like, you sort of realize, like, oh, this guy is the king. But, like, it, no one's... It just feels very unpredictable. As a kid reading it, it doesn't feel like a, a comforting story. It feels like an exciting story, but also kind of a terrifying story. Because the rules don't seem to stay consistent. And at any moment, you feel like things can change. But not in the way that, like, bad writing is inconsistent. But in the way you just realize, this is actually a pretty dangerous world. Looked through the eyes of, like, a child. So they don't realize quite how dangerous it is but me reading it I'm like this is scary this would not be a place I want to go and like visit 
or live because it feels very like insecure like there's just a lot of things that you don't understand and when you do understand you realize this is not a good idea to be yeah here. and a lot of the characters even the even the the good characters you know they're not safe they're scary you know there's the hungry tiger that always wants to eat babies but he's too polite to but he still wants to eat babies that's the thing. <laughs> and, and that's how all of his writing is and it's fantastic it, it rides that edge through all the books i've read so far it's just fanta- fantastic the way he writes it i will i will say that um with this series i started i picked up one of the middle books thinking that it would be similar to the movies where the second movie was so far removed from the first one you could kind of watch it on its own but there's so much submersion and so much um stuff that carries over between the books that was completely lost so you have to read it basically from the beginning which i guess is obvious but i didn't think about that. no it really well you think it's a kid's book and you just kind of pick it up but it really builds on itself you're right it really interlocks and there are characters that if you don't know what's going on earlier in the books yeah you're, you'd be lost i do remember he did a lot of like cameos of characters like he'd pull characters for like one conversation that had been major players in other books and I think that he did that for probably the readers, like, being excited. Yeah. But if you're reading it in the middle, like you said, you're like, this person came in, they had, like, one conversation and walked away. Like, who was that person? Yeah, sometimes Dorothy's the of, cameo, you know? It feels a little bit like not getting the references. You're, like, you haven't watched, like, I haven't watched The Walking Dead. So Russell make Walking Dead references, and I don't get what those references are. And he just kind of looks at me like, oh, like, hey Jen, I don't get wa- it. Hey, Jen, watch The Walking Dead. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, I haven't watched The Walking Dead. So it feels that way sometimes if you break in, I think, mid-series. So definitely reading from the beginning. I actually love the second, that's not my movie for today, but I did love the second Winner's Wizard of Oz movie. Uh, I thought it was great. Watching as an adult, it's even better than watching as a kid. Oh, 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 Russ is making a hand signal at me. I'm not supposed to bring that movie up. Because maybe that's his movie recommendation. Potent- potentially, we, we might return to Oz later. I know. <laughs> I did say we spoil everything. And we do spoil, I didn't say the beginning, but we spoil, um, we don't intentionally spoil all the time, but we do spoil a lot. Sometimes we do intentionally Jen's spoil. Jen's trying to spoil my spoiler now. So there we go with that. All right, Sarah, and do you have yes. a book? And first of all, I want to thank you both for letting me do this. I was super excited to come on this show. And if you haven't figured it out, I kind of lost my voice a little bit, so I sound horrible. But hopefully I can speak clear enough that you can understand what I'm saying. In any case, uh, like Russ, I thought it would be fun to do a theme book, movie, and game that I chose has a unique first-person perspective to each of them. So the book that I chose for this is Neil Patrick Harris's autobiography. So I know you're thinking, well, it's an autobiography. It's obviously not first person. But the reason I like this book so much is because the way he tells it is he's saying that you are him. So the chapters are written out. It says you are born. You're born in this location. Your parents are this person and this person and describes his parents, but says that they're yours. So it kind of puts you in Neil's place. And the other cool point about this book is that it's a a choose your own adventure, which... Sorry, our cat's a jerk. Hi, Bob. Bob just made his (laughs) podcast cameo. Sorry. That's okay. (laughs) So it's a choose your own adventure, which reminds me of um, back in my childhood, one of my favorite books was called Zork. And that was a choose your own adventure where you get to the end of the chapter And it gives you two options and you can turn the page to one or the other option based on what decision you make. So there are points in this book that are uh, true for him, that are a part of his life. And then there's other ones that are so bizarrely off um, from like there there are certain endings where he dies and he obviously is not dead. So it's it's really entertaining to kind of see where the story goes and to kind of submerge yourself into his world in that way. 
I, so I love choose your own adventures books. So this is super appealing to me. I just wondered, like, I know I've read autobiographies and memoirs before. Uh, Simon Pegg's is one that I think of where he's really uncomfortable talking about his personal life. And so do you feel like that Neil Patrick Harris was like, I'm a little uncomfortable talking about some of these things. And so if I do it this way, where some of it's fiction and some of it's fact, it's a little easier to tell. Or do you feel like he was just doing something super fun and original and just different from everybody else and not being the, the everyday memoir? Yeah, I think it was um, more of the latter. I think he thought it was enjoyable to kind of make a joke out of certain aspects. And he does talk about more serious things like his sexuality and coming out as a homosexual and his relationship with his partner and his children. So there are certain things that are touched on with that. But there is an overall kind of lighthearted snarkiness to it. And the way that it's worded, it's written so well that it just flows really nicely and it's very entertaining and engaging in spite of the the bizarre way that it, it's set up. Does this make you wish that he writes novel that he wrote novels? Yeah, I mean he is very charismatic, so I think that he would do well with that. And he actually does an audiobook. I listened through the entire audiobook too, and he was very good and engaging on the audiobook reading it. So he read his book. How does he pull that off with the choose your own adventure aspect? Yeah. There's actually, <laughs> there's actually a blurb in the beginning where he talks about how he can't have you switch the CDs out because you might get into an accident and there's lawsuits. So he kind of chooses the adventures and then um, he'll say, if you want to pursue acting, keep reading. Or if you want to pursue magic, wait a little longer. So instead of having you turn to the page. Ah, gotcha. So that makes sense. That's fun. I, you know, that's the funny thing. Like you write something amazing like this and I imagine then they're like, we want you to read it as an audiobook, And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. the whole <laughs> point of this is that it's this new, I did this thing and it's really cool and it's choose your own adventure. And they're like, well, we still want you to read it that's right. <laughs> and you have to figure it out. I really like him a lot. I think that's, I, I'm really interested to read that now. That's such a cool format to do. And I like that. Um, I like that he did that 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 way. Yeah, I've been a fan since Doogie Howser, MD. <laughs> <laughs> Which he uh, talks about in the book. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's great. I hope he doesn't hate those years because oh, as a no. kid, it was fun to watch. It was fun to watch him. Definitely. I think even though that show is obviously comedy and there's so many parts that are cheesy, I think the thing that really rings true about being a child is that I think everyone always assumes that children have this kind of carefully free life. But I think children themselves do feel like they're Doogie Howser MD. Like they do feel like they have serious decisions to make. They have serious responsibilities and people don't understand that. And so I always kind of liked that it was a show as a kid because I'm like, I do feel like even though I was obviously was not a doctor or a genius or anything, but you feel like those decisions you're making are tough decisions and you have a lot of responsibility, but people kind of assume you don't. And so that's one of the things that I always liked about that. So I didn't want to be sad. Like he didn't like to, they were horrible to yeah. him on set and he didn't enjoy doing it like that's one of the saddest things about becoming an adult and looking back at things that you loved and having the people being in them be like i was not having a good time or they treated me horribly or people were actually terrible or whatever right well that that's the other charm of this book is that he's not a child star that wrote an autobiography talking about how he reached a low point in his life and had to kind of climb out of some sort of addiction he has a very supportive loving family they were very supportive of um his sexuality so it, it's i think that's why it always keeps this light airy feel because there's not these these low points that he discusses and well that's awesome I, I i'm glad you recommended that yeah and also i've noticed uh, lately as well at the library actually that the there's been a revival in Choose Your Own Adventure books for kids as well, which is really exciting because it's a really neat format. All right. Thank you, Sarah, so much. I'm excited to read that book. So my, I do have a little bit of a theme today. 
uh, which is kind of like old things. <laughs> well, they're just kind of going back. I thought like farming something we think of like as an old timey thing. So my movie is Pygmalion. And I actually checked to see if I was pronouncing it correctly because just because. <laughs> and I am. So Pygmalion started off as a play by George Bernard Shaw. And it has a familiar plot because they did My Fair Lady is another version of it. And I do not like My Fair Lady that much, which is a lot of people are going to be angry with me. Ooh. <laughs> I don't like it as much. And some of it has the fact I watched uh, Pygmalion first, the movie. came out in like 1938. And the performances in that movie are just so very different from My Fair Lady. So just forget about My Fair Lady other than, yeah, they're based on the same play and watch Pygmalion. It stars Leslie Howard and Wen Wendy Hiller. And I really liked... Sometimes we look at older things and we just feel like they're not relatable. We have this sort of idea in our society, well, if we go back to old, older times, like they just didn't have to deal with real problems or they are very problematic because they kind of treat women like they're dumb or there's just a lot of things. And the thing I love about Pygmalion, it just really deals with really clearly the difference in class and also how two very, very strong personality people can be attracted and kind of the problems in that and the benefits in that. So if you're familiar with My Fair Lady, you kind of know a little bit about this. But basically, Leslie Howard's character is a linguist, which I need because I'm a chronic mumbler and I have a lazy tongue, apparently, and I slur all my words, which I did not realize fully until I started a podcast. <laughs> but he's basically a guy who was born into the upper class and his whole life is just wrapped around academic, I don't want to say desires, but his, his academic prowess and the fact that he understands the English language better than anyone else on the planet. He teaches it better than anyone else. He can just hear the difference in, in, any, in, in, in how people pronounce vowels and consonants. And his whole life is kind of wrapped about that. And he doesn't really care about money. And he honestly doesn't really even care about class. But he has the privilege of doing that because he's never had to worry about it. Like he's born into the right kind of family where he can be an eccentric and no one cares. And he's so academically brilliant that no one, no one's bothered by him. And if they are, it's like a momentary, like that guy's rude, but it doesn't ruin his life the way it would ruin his, someone else's life if they were in a lower class. And then you have Wendy Hiller, Wendy Hiller's character, who's Eliza Doolittle. And she's the kind of person, she is very intelligent. And you can kind of see that pretty quickly, even though her, the way she speaks is very lower class. And she's fought tooth and nail to be independent. So she's an independent business person. You know, at one point, one of my favorite lines, the way she delivers it is, you know, we were above that where I lived. I sold flowers. I didn't sell myself. And she was just like, she fought to have her life kind of on her own terms. And so when they meet up, he kind of just very cavalier offers her this opportunity to totally change her life. And I, th I think that I'm not, I don't want to criticize my fair lady, but there's, a, there's a feeling in this movie because it's so much more, I think it's so much more, they did a better job of making it grittier. You understand that she's right on that line of like, right on that poverty line. Like she has her little apartment. She has her ability to sell flowers, but if anything goes wrong, like she's done, like she's in debtor's prison. She's going to die of starvation. Like she's right on the edge. So he kind of just offers her like, Oh, I could teach her to speak like a duchess. And for her, what's holding her back is the way she speaks because it shows her level of education immediately as soon as people talk to her. And she makes this bold, bold, bold chance of like going for it and asking him to teach her. And that's kind of what kind of changes her life. And I feel like in My Fair Lady, they make it more of like a, 
I don't know if they really bring out what I love about Pygmalion, which is the fact that she is a very strong, independent person who is taking this chance and she's throwing herself into it because she realizes this can change her life. And she's very aware of that. And she's trying to get herself to like the highest station she can think of, which is working in an actual flower shop. Like that's where her love, she realizes that's so far above her. Like shooting for that is like, an amazing dream and landing on it where he totally doesn't realize it. Like Henry Higgins does not realize that at all. He's just like, can I do this? This is interesting to me because he doesn't understand the level she lives on. And that's one of the things in the movie, the biggest conflict. And I think probably in the play is just this idea of how he thinks that he's the worldly one. He thinks he's the one that knows all about the world and she doesn't, but really he doesn't because he doesn't understand her desperation and the fact that when he when he teaches her how to speak clearly, when he provides for all her needs and then the experiment's done, what's going to happen to her? He feels like she's just going to be okay because he's just always okay. But she understands the razor's edge of where she walks and like how, what it's like to not have any money or any means to be able to do anything. And when she kind of realized she does have freedom and that education is freedom. So I really love this movie just for the performances alone. I think the humor is so bitingly sharp and I really understood at the end a lot of the way the ending happened. And I, I could understand how these characters could care about each other and be so angry at each other at the same time. And so I highly recommend it. It's one of those ways you look back and realize people have always been people. Like this idea that, you know, the farther back we go in time, that people became, were more naive or that they just don't understand like the emotions the way we do. And that's just not true. I mean, this really just shows you that so many of the conflicts we have now just interacting with other people have always been there. And it's just, I love it so much. And the performances are just so sharp. And Leslie Howard's always amazing. But in this performance, he's particularly amazing. And Wendy Hiller, you don't see her much. She's an English actress. We didn't see her much in American film, but she just delivers this amazing performance and really transforms herself in a way that you can see across and which is difficult, I think, to do and communicate that kind of transformation, like the inner transformation that happens when, when somebody changes. And I just love this movie so much. Yeah, I, I really enjoy this movie as well. And I think maybe the different, the biggest difference between uh, Pygmalion and My Fair Lady is My Fair Lady sort of uh, kind of, I don't know, kind of misses the point a little bit and just doesn't have that same heart to it. And maybe they play to the comedy of the situation more than the drama. I don't know, but... Well, I think there's one scene when he's first trying to get her to like speak correctly. He takes her to a a horse race. And I think there's a lot of comedies like loud and yeah. just bombastic. But what I really love, and I think follows the original play, is in Pygmalion, he just, he wants to take her to tea with his mom. And it, he doesn't ask his mom he doesn't talk to his mom he just shows up and there's already people there having tea and it's like the ultimate awkward conversation yeah. because she can speak correctly but she doesn't understand the taboo things they don't talk about so she talks about the fact that her aunt might have been murdered for a hat and she's doing it <laughs> in a very correct accent and she's speaking very clearly and using the upper class accent but the thing she's talking about like her aunt you know like she was hale and hearty and all of a sudden she wasn't and we think she was poisoned because where did her hat and hat pin go that was supposed to come to me? And everyone else in the room is so uncomfortable and she's just continuing to talk and then suddenly it, it clicks that no one else is talking and they're sort of looking at her like she's this strange thing and she realizes she must have made a social faux pas and it's like the most tense moment. You're just sitting there just so uncomfortable for her and you're just like no 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 and it makes you angry at Henry Higgins because he just finds it all like a great joke he just thinks it's great like that because he doesn't like 
other people in his own class. Like, he thinks it's like, oh, it's hilarious. This is the most hilarious joke that she's talking about her aunt being murdered. And, you know, and for her, it's the most emotionally devastating thing because she feels like it doesn't matter what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be able to be different. I'm always going to be in lower class because even though I can speak correctly, I'm not going to know all of these social nuances, like what you talk about, what you don't talk about, you know, the kind of post-Victorian taboos. So it's really, it's really a good, it's a good movie and super interesting. It's been a long time since I've seen My Fair Lady. So I might be wrong with this, but wasn't her father... There was a father, Eliza's father. And they had this really strained relationship. Like he was a partier and a lush and really didn't take care of her well growing up. And is that addressed at all in this film? Yes, it is. He shows up and I think they do a better job of it because they kind of show you kind of the disregard he has, but you don't hate him. He just kind of, he's like, he didn't marry her. Like they make it clear in the movie Pygmalion. He didn't, he wasn't married to her mother and he's not married with the lady he's living with now. And not, and just because he doesn't want to, and because he doesn't have to worry about supporting them. And he has this sort of feeling of like, I don't want to have anything that I'm going to want to have to hang on to. And and so there's a definite feeling there. They really do a good job of showing how he doesn't care about her all until the second he figures he can get something out of her. But the funny thing is he doesn't want that much because if he gets too much, then he's going to want to hang on to it. And he wants to feel good about drinking it away. Like basically if he gets too much money, then he's not going to want to drink it away. He's going to want to save it up. So he just wants enough that he can go get drunk for like a weekend and not worry about it, but not so much that he's going to want to save it. And you sort of get how she had to become so fiercely independent (laughs) at such a young age because she's the exact opposite of him, even though they're in the same class is she's like I'm going to fight to hang on to everything I can hang on to and have as much dignity as possible and he's like I don't want any dignity at all because that means I'd have to marry the lady I'm living with that means I'd have to save my money that means I couldn't get drunk and wake up the next morning and go back to being like a dustman a garbage man so I really like that too I actually like the actor that plays her dad better in Pygmalion because he just looks you he just makes you he whistles when he talks he looks like someone who's had a really tough life like he looks beat up and so i think that he does a better job of kind of communicating what he's about and so they do a really good job of that too just kind of showing you know she's kind of fond of him in her own way like it's she doesn't hate him hate him but there's a definite feeling of like he has nothing to do with her and she has nothing to do with him like he would never help her if something happened to her you really get the impression that he has no ability to help her and he wouldn't want to help her because it would put some sort of emotional there'd be an obligation there and his life is all about no obligations he has no obligations to his to family he has no obligations to his girlfriend he's living with he has no obligations to society he wants no obligations whatsoever which is what makes the turnaround so funny when he actually uh, has to deal with obligations <laughs> I know in both of these movies my favorite part is always they sort of have this scene where on the first day of teaching so he's trying to have her repeat lines and stuff that's always my favorite part like my name is Henry Higgins my name is Henry Higgins that's always my favorite part <laughs> well the thing about it is they do a good job showing like her schooling is torturous like he's he's exhausted she's exhausted like they do a good job of being like this is not a fun makeover thing like a makeover montage where it's like oh she gets her pretty dresses like she's working so hard she's like openly weeping as she's trying to do this because she's so exhausted because he's pushing her so hard and pushing himself so hard to get this done in the time period they've set up for her to be ready to pass as upper class for this big 
reception. It's like an ambassador's reception. I had to think of the word. So they're, he's pushing hard because he likes to push hard. And she's pushing hard because she doesn't want to let him down. But also, like, this is her. She wants to get this dream. And so they do a really good job of, like, you feel bad for both of them. Like, because it just seems horrific. <laughs> like, staying up till 3M, repeating the same sentence over and over and over again to get those H's correct. And being, like, that t- If you've ever been so tired, you're just, like, crying. Even though you're not, like, crying, weeping, but, like, tears are just coming out of the side of your eyes because you're so tired. They just show that so clearly, like, how exhausted they are. And I'm more emotionally invested than I am if they were breaking into song at 15 minutes. I'm Very more, true. Because you feel that anxiety of that she's not going to be able to do it. Like when you saw when you see Audrey Hepburn, you're like she'll she's fine. <laughs> she'll she'll be fine. But when you see Wendy Hiller, you're like you really do have anxiety that she's not going to be able to do this, and what is her life going to be after this? So anyway, it's it's Pygmalion. It's the nineteen. It's the movie. It's the nineteen thirty eight version. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. There's a couple other places it is too as well, or you can buy it if you're really ambitious. <laughs> All right, my movie today is Return to Oz. 1985, which I was trying to get these ladies not to not to spill the beans on during the book. Uh, it was directed by by Walter Murden. It was starring Gene Marsh and Piper Laurie of Twin Peaks Oeuvre. Uh, it also introduced Feruza Balk, who's done a who had a really nice career actually after this. In fact, right now she's on Ray Donovan, the show on Showtime. I really liked this movie, and for the longest time they did not have it available on DVD. But recently I got it on DVD and watched it again, and I just really enjoyed it as a kid. And again, even enjoyed it more now that I've read the Oz books. This movie actually follows the books more closely than the Wizard of Oz movie that we all love and cherish. It really follows the book Ozma of Oz very, very closely. Even the changing of the heads and everything. It's a really creepy little thing. It starts with it starts with Dorothy not being able to sleep well at night. And so Aunt Em and Uncle Henry actually take her to a psychiatrist who hooks her up to a machine. It's it's not the normal Wizard of Oz kind of story. It's definitely much darker. You know, there's talking pumpkins and all kinds of crazy stuff that happens. And the wheelers, which are terrifying. Those are nightmare fuel. The, wheel- the wheelies? Is the wheelers the wheelers. wheelers? The wheelers. Because those things, even though they just look like ridiculous sort of circus hipsters, like... Seeing those things as a kid, like, you have nightmares about being followed on wheels yeah. by these guys, and they're, like, cries coming over the hill. That's definitely terrifying. Circus hipsters with no arms and legs. I know. <laughs> Just wheels. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But, yeah, re- watching this again as an adult, I really enjoyed it. Because, you know, you enjoy movies as a kid, and you don't you don't think about... You know how they're gonna age, but this one ages really well. And again, Jim Henson, all of the puppetry and stuff, and it just really still looks good on film because again, pre CGI, and so they actually had to, you know, actually had to do stuff. So if you see a, a guy in a pumpkin head, it's actually a guy in a pumpkin head, you know, which is pretty cool. But um, definitely, if if you've never seen it, give it a watch. It's definitely kind of creepy, and it's definitely a solid PG rating. I think it definitely plays with a lot of fears, like fears that people have even as adults, like the fact that someone's gonna think you're crazy and lock you up in the same asylum just for you know saying things that they don't particularly like. I just enjoy. I really enjoyed that movie too as a kid, and even as an adult, like the whole feel of it. I'm shocked that Disney made it because it was a Disney movie. Oh yeah, it was like for the Disney Channel. When you think about the Disney Channel now, and you look at that movie, you're like, they went in a very different direction after this. But I really, it's just one of those movies that you care about the characters. It's really hard for someone to step into, I feel like, the original Dorothy's shoes. You just care about this little girl, and you worry about her. And I like, Frank Baum always has, I think, this good theme of, like, adults 
are imperfect and kind of can be terrifying for a child. And I really enjoy seeing that in that movie played out where she used to deal with very unreasonable adults and she comes out on top sometimes. And I really like that a lot. Yeah, and there's a lot of neat characters. You know, Jack Pumpkinhead, TikTok. There's a lot of really cool characters. The Gnome King that all get introduced in this movie. And in the book, Ozma of Oz. But definitely take a take a look at it or a second look at it. It's uh, it's definitely worth a look. Yeah, and I think my, my thought on that process is, is th- this movie came out during an era where we had Labyrinth and never-ending story and even fraggle rock where there was this darker kind of weird element to it and i think the fact that they had these things and these deeper concepts is what makes us still drawn to them now as adults and makes them so timeless i think now we're more afraid to talk about a kid's inner life like we kind of want them to have this sort of childhood where they're not affected by anything negatively and that comes from a positive place but i think that we don't as explore like kids have real concerns like not just like not just like a little like, oh, is my friend going to like me? But like real fears and concern. And I think that those kind of movies, when you're talking about like Labyrinth, those plays on all those deep fears. You know what's a deep fear is? Is your little brother getting kidnapped out of his crib in the middle of the night? True. And it's your fault. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of dealing with kind of the pre-adolescent and adolescent, like their inner life and how we, it is scary in our own heads. Like, you know, you think it's safe in your own head, but it can be very scary in there. And I like that theme. It's what makes those movies have a deeper, a deeper emotion. And for adults, definitely coming back to look at them years later makes them relevant to you. Because even as adults, like your head can be a scary place. Like, it can be a very scary place. And to see kind of those themes played out. And I think we've all felt like, especially as you and I, Lady Sarah, we all felt like Dorothy were dealing with people that are sort of denying the idea that you know what you're talking about. And also that you can accomplish things and kind of telling you. I think the Gnome King in that, he's very much like, oh, you know, almost like a, not parental, but sort of authoritative, like, oh, I know and you don't know. I know and you don't know. And she knows that she knows this is wrong. And I like that a lot because I think people, I think kids face that in real life. Like not all adults are trustworthy adults and not all situations are good situations. And to kind of act like that everything they deal with is great. I don't know if it helps them or not. I don't know if this idea that movies are going to be kind of how we do them now versus how we did them then. I don't know if it's helpful or not. I don't know. I enjoy the movies of my childhood for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Now, sir, do you have a movie? Yes. I'm actually doing a faux pas because I haven't seen this movie yet. But What? (laughs) It fits to my theme, which is unique first-person perspective. And if anyone has seen the previews for this, you'll know talking about Hardcore Henry, which is going to be released April 8th, 2016. But there's actually a film that was originally released in 2015... It was a Russian-American production, and it won an award at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2015. Uh, It had won an award, and as a result, there was a bidding war between Lionsgate Universal and STX Entertainment to gain rights to this film to re-release it on the big screen, and STX Entertainment won out to the bidding war by purchasing it for $10 million. And I don't think they made a whole lot of changes, but the basic premise is that a man wakes up in a Moscow laboratory, and he's learned that he's been brought back from the dead as a half-human, half-robotic hybrid. He has no memory of his former life, and... The woman who brought him back from the dead claims to be his wife. But before she's able to activate his voice chip, she gets kidnapped. And so he goes on this quest to save her. Now, the reason that this is so unique is because the entire movie is filmed in a first-person perspective. So there is really no actor that's hardcore Henry. It is the viewer. And you'll see his 
hands swinging and his legs kicking, but it's actually you facing these people in combat. And there's some really bizarre choreographed scenes from what I've seen online that look really compelling. And I think it would be really challenging to do a first person movie, even though you see it a lot in video games, but to follow the the storyline for people to be able to grasp what's going on because you see these you know, the 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 environment's just whipping around you. I think it was probably very artistic talent to bring it together, but it looks really good. Yeah, I saw the trailer on this, and it looks fantastic. And I love the fact that they they paired it with a Queen song. That was a great decision on their part. I think that really was cool. But yeah, I think it's really it's really a challenging kind of movie to make. Basically, the hero of the film, you never get to see their reaction. And so because of that, like we play off of that so much in movies. I'm really interested to see how this worked. And I looked up too, like like even Rotten Tomatoes, they've seen it. They gave it an 85%. So I'm really excited about about this movie. It looks awesome. Just basically run out and see this movie when it comes out. Yeah, I'm going to. This is going to be great. Yeah. If it's terrible, Sarah will come back and, and Sarah save will refund your money if yeah. it's terrible. No, she will not. We're not saying that. <laughs> I don't want any, I mean, we, you know, I don't want any bills sent to our internet address, I guess. <laughs> I don't want any bills sent there. But that sounds really fascinating. I think, I really like we live in an age where we get to see more foreign films, and more foreign films are getting enough money to really do things. So you're getting some really interesting movies, like out of Korea, there's been a lot of really interesting movies, and just markets you wouldn't normally think of, and I like that so much. I think it adds so much variety to entertainment. We kind of get, you know, American, 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 and there's sometimes we start going over and over the same tropes over and over again and we don't get an opportunity to look at things in a new way so i i'm excited about that well i have a game and i kind of have a little bit of like i don't always have a theme russ actually asked me when we started this podcast if we're gonna have themes and i said no then now i'm starting to think in themes (laughs) themes are fun so i don't know i guess the theme is kind of kind of like not old-timey but like looking at things that are older and in a new way and the game i'm going to recommend is power grid it came out in 2004 I have my notes here. The designer, the designer, uh, the designer was uh, Friedman Fries, and there's like three different art artists. This is a really pretty game. I like this game a lot. Uh, the illustrations are really nice. What, the basic premise is that you are trying to power things, and you have to buy power plants of different kinds, and they have to run on things. And it really, if you are teaching a class on supply and demand, you really should play this game with your students <laughs> because it's a game all about what we're dealing with now, like all about dealing with just this whole, like a fuel crisis and some, not so much a crisis, but what it's like when you have to power more and more cities and there's less and less fuel to buy to power it. So we start off the game, you basically have, you have to like pick a power, a power plant and they can run off different things. They can run off coal, they can run off oil. There's some wind powered ones. They can run off trash and they can run off of uh, uranium. So there's, you have to constantly like kind of buy new power plants to power more cities like in the beginning you may have a power plant it may only be able to to power one city so you have to upgrade that in front of you and the thing about this game is it's first of all it's fiercely competitive because the pool of things you have to buy like the oil and the coal all of the other people are buying that too and it only refills at a certain amount every turn so if i have a bunch of oil burning plants and russ is a bunch of oil burning plants and we're both furiously buying oil first of all the more oil you buy the higher in price each barrel is the next time it may not refill to recover those losses so you might end up paying way more continually and sometimes 
sometimes you may not have any to be able to buy. So it really makes you think about just the whole supply and demand economics and how we power things in a new way. But also it's just super competitive because you are literally messing over other players by your decisions. So <laughs> it's a it's a board game? It's a board game. Oh, sorry. Did I clarify? It's a board game. It could be a really fun computer game, actually. But it's a board game. And you, you can pick it up at any board game store. If you go on Board Game Geek, they rate it pretty highly. Bob, oh my goodness, sorry. He got right in my face. Hi, Bob. Yes, we love you. Everybody <laughs> loves you. Hurrah. All right, so it's just, it's one of those games that it kind of goes from simple to complex. Oh my gosh. Now he's eating things off the wall. He's eating things off the wall because he hates us. Oh my gosh. Okay, so continuing on. But it's one of those games that starts off and it feels like a pretty simple premise, but then as the game goes on and things start to get more and more scarce, the complexity starts to really bump up. So I really enjoy this game. Russ and I have played it a lot. Yeah, it's a really competitive game. I like it. I think Rio Grande makes it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're really, really good. It's a German game originally called Funkenschlag. But um, it's been... (laughs) I don't know if it's called Funkenschlag, but we call it that. No, that's the name of it. It's That's the... That's, yeah. that's the German name for the game. But whatever the case, they've, uh, they have an English version now. But what's nice is the basic set, too. It's nice that they, the basic set is a double-sided board. On one side is the USA and the other side is Germany. Um, and I like the fact, too, that you can buy other boards. So they have, like, almost ten boards out now. And each side is a different country, which is pretty cool. So Yeah, that's the advantage. You can play the United States. You can play... It's originally a German game, so you can play Germany. And then they have all these boards. And the nice thing is, like, sometimes you buy expansions to games... They make you more frustrated. Like, you get to a point where you're like, this has made the game so complicated, I can't play. Or it just makes it, it doesn't, it takes away some of the things that you like about the game. Like, I think Carcassonne's a classic example of that. I don't like, I like Carcassonne a lot, but I don't like all the expansions to Carcassonne because the complexity gets to a certain level where you're like, the thing, you know, some of the things that made the game strategically interesting, like that you can't move farmers, they took away in some later expansions. And so it changes how the game is played to the point where you're like, this isn't even the same game. But the nice thing about Power Grid is their expansions are just new maps. So you get to play North and South Korea. And guess what? You can't cross over those lines. So if you pick one side, you yeah, it's super interesting. You have to pick one side or the other side. They do things like, for instance, France... Usually when you start with uranium, there's barely any, and you have to wait for it to kind of, each round it gets, more and more gets added. Well, when you, because France in real life, they use mostly nuclear power. In the France board, you start off with way more uranium than you do in any other game. So they put those sort of things in play. Like they take like a map of a country and they'll say, well, what's, what's challenging about powering them? And they actually say, okay, well, if you're playing this board, you know, they have way more oil than coal, or they have some of these unique geographic things that you have to work around. Or like in the case of North and South Korea, they don't really interact at all. (laughs) Yeah, I like how they they tailored tailored the geopolitical climate of the time, and that kind of really put that into the game. And they're not horribly, the expansion boards are not horribly expensive. So let's say you've played Power Grid a billion times, and you're like, I need a new board. They're not terribly expensive it may be like 10 15 dollars to pick up a new board kind of get your favorites like well i like playing the france board because i like having more nuclear power i think that's more adds an interesting dynamic to it that kind of thing yeah and i'm, I'm more willing to buy a power grid expansion because it's only 15 or 20 dollars like when you buy a base a base set for a game and it's only 50 it's 50 dollars or 60 dollars and then they want to want you to pay 34.95 for an expansion to me that's kind of ridiculous i'd rather stick with something that's a little more affordable and and again it, it, these power grid expansions they just add so much to the game yeah i like the fact too like just when i felt like we had kind of all memorized the power plants and like we knew kind of what was coming out then they made an additional deck of power plants that are all different now which is really cool 
So that's Power Grid. You can pick it up online or go to a local game store and check it out because they'll help you figure out the rules and stuff too there. That's what's always nice about going local is they help you out. And, and that's my game recommendation. All right. My game today, can you tell what it's going to be? Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a Wizard of Oz slot machine game. Oh, no. <laughs> listen, listen. I would not just recommend any slot machine game. There are a billion slot machine games out there. But I will say Wizard of Oz Slots by Zynga is an amazing game. I play it every day, multiple times a day. But they just have really lush graphics, beautiful sound. Basically what they do is they recreate every scene of the Wizard of Oz movie. They have dialogue from the movie. They, they, the artwork is just absolutely amazing. And they have there's lots of playability to it. And again, this is another game where you can do microtransactions, but I have not done them. But I've done quite well for myself. Presently, I'm sitting on about $11 billion in the game, which is pretty cool. Yes, Jen? I just have to say, this is one of the things I love about Russ, because here's the deal. He actually really loves this game, which he wouldn't bring it up. Most people would be like, I'm not going to bring up a slot machine app on a game review site. But he totally will, because he genuinely loves this game, and he does not care what anyone else thinks. <laughs> so I just, I'm saying that because I, I, I totally laughed. Because I knew, number one, that he loves this game and he does play this game several times a day and he'll just pull it out and play it. And also, that I don't think anyone else would bother to review this game, but Russell loves it and he's reviewing it and everything he's saying is 100% true about it. I would also like to say that Russell never spends money on this game and he will explain to you why you should probably not do that. Well, I will say there's been many times I've been at zero dollars and I've had to actually wait for my for my refill every two hours to get more money. But then I, I got a system where I was able to, to build my money really well. And again, at this point, I have so much money, I don't even know what to do with it. I literally have tapped out every every machine that they have and I'm waiting for new ones. And I think I, the next five ones, even if I don't do anything, the next five ones will open up for free for me, which is cool. But yeah, they have seven worlds and six levels each. And then there's other levels as well. VIP world, high roller level. So there's about 50 different levels. And I've gone on a rant about microtransactions before, with especially with apps. Yes, you have. I have. I've ranted about that before. So I would just like to say, like with any of these games, especially app games, Russ loves this game and he's never spent a dime on it. Like, don't be suckered into spending... Like, they kind of, like, there's people who spend hundreds of dollars on a fake slot machine that they're never going to get paid out in real money. Like, don't do that, please. If you, just enjoy it as is. Or if you want to spend a couple bucks on it, sure, do. But don't, don't do this thing. Like, I know, like, they come up like, hey, you can spend, you can put a hundred dollars into this thing for, for all these coins. It's not a real slot machine. It's not going to pay you out real money. So it's even a worse money investment than an actual slot machine, which I didn't think was possible. But, so just, you know, fair warning. I wish you could cash it out the other way, because... For buying the money, I have about 2,000 actual U.S. dollars worth of money in my bank right now. I wish you could cash it out for, you know, even 10 cents on the dollar. (laughs) Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It's only game cash. I have seen it. The sounds are beautiful, and it looks beautiful. It's not annoying in the way that some app sounds are annoying. It's kind of just kind of relaxing. And if you like that sort of atmosphere, like that Vegas atmosphere, like you you find it relaxing to have a lot of lights and things going off at the same time. Like it is a relaxing thing to do, I think. Yeah, and again, I wouldn't review... The reason I review this specifically is because they do right what most of these slot machine games do wrong. Everything is just beautiful. It's well thought out. It's well executed. It's got a theme that, you know, pretty much everyone in the world loves at this point. And they just did a very good job, and I think they deserve a nod. Uh, They do a lot of good games. Zynga, Z-Y-N-G-A. You can get it for free. Uh, Download on Android, iPhone, all of those. Google games, all of those. So the the Wizard of Oz, is it just pictures on there, or how does that tie into the game? So... 
every level is a different part of the movie. And so when the, when the level starts, it actually quotes actual lines from the movie. And then they have everything on the reels are pictures from the movie. And then there's usually a, a flat picture background. And then when you go to a free spins option, then it will go to another place where it quotes even more of the movie. So it's, it's interactive and also flat pictures. If and that it makes looks, sense. you know, you sort of realize Wizard of Oz is the original steampunk in a lot of ways. The outside of it's like beautifully like gold gilded. It looks like some sort of steampunk cosplayer's dream of like what a slot yeah. machine should look like. Yeah. Like it's be- and like things are kind of always moving. Like they spend a lot of time. It's a labor of love, and you can just tell. It looks whoever they hired, whatever team they have to do the, the kind of design for this game, obviously spent a lot of time getting the details right and making it look beautiful. Kind yeah. of like some points like like jewel tones. Some points like watercolor tones. It looks really beautiful the way they did it. It's an absolutely beautiful game, and they've done a fantastic job. Check it out. Wizard of Oz slots uh, by Zing. Russ is a genuine person. That's all I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Got a game for us, Sarah. Yes. Yes, I do. And I actually had a really hard time picking a game because I want to do unique first-person perspective. And there are so many first-person games out there, but a lot of them are very similar. Like, there's so many first-person shooters. And even though the stories might be different, like Mass Effect has an incredible storyline, it's still just a first-person shooter. So I want to do something that was unique. So after much research, I came up with Until Dawn, which came out in 2015. And it's for next generation, which I guess is current generation now. But I think it's only available on the PlayStation 4. And I know any of you who might have played this will probably think this is not a first person. But I will get to that point. First of all, I want to say how incredible this this video game is. It is a horror genre game. And it is next generation. A lot of the new games that came out when back in, in this time, like 2015, they were really pushing the high definition and showing, expanding what they could do in next gen. They really went above and beyond with the, the visual effects of this game. It is an all-star cast. I have the names written here, like Hayden, Panettiere, am I saying that right? From Heroes. I think so, yeah. Brett Dalton from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Noah Fleece from Fringe and Law and & Order. So there's a ton of cast members that do the voice acting and then they also take their likeness and put their faces in the game. So if you have anybody in the game that's you're fond of, it's kind of cool to be able to play those characters. So for the most part, it is where you're playing the characters and you're, you're looking at them from a, a third-person perspective. And it's very has a nod to certain horror films like it's very scream-esque there's a a group of teenagers that go up to a cabin in the woods and to spend a weekend together partying and splitting off to all be doing fornication things (laughs) (laughs) trying to be pg um So it it does start off that way, and it's very cliché to horror. And I think they kind of nod to that to say, yes, we are making this cliché. And there are certain aspects of Saw in it, so it takes um, some older horror and newer horror and brings it into the storyline. And then there's also some great cinematography, and I hate to say that, maybe that's not the right word, but the angles that they use are very akin to Silent Hill. And those older games where you're looking at these different angles that it's almost like you're the, the predator looking upon them, which is, is is conducive to movies as well. Clock Tower, which is another famous horror type game that is, there's clues that you pick up to solve a puzzle. It has a lot of that to it as well. So the story is really great. It's, it's really attractive visually. But the reason that I chose it 
is because of the first person perspective. Now, in the very beginning of the game, it talks about the butterfly effect. You're faced with making really crucial decisions. And unlike other games where you make a choice and pretty much it ends up in the same direction, your choices can really impact the game. It can cost people their lives and uh, you can't go back and redo it. There's no go back to your last save point. It auto saves the whole thing. So if you accidentally don't catch a fail save, like hit a button when it wants you to hit the button, you can kill somebody and they're dead for the rest of the game. So there's over 200 different possible endings that you can go down based on your decisions. And it's not just fail saves, it's also whether or not you decide to go with this friend or that friend or side with this friend or that friend because there's conflicts, there's relationships that can be affected that come up later in the game. So there's this huge butterfly effect scheme. Even that is not the reason why I chose this game, but the, the, the big thing that really drew me to it and thought this was so cool is when you go through, it's a chapter-based setting. And at the end of the chapters, you start interacting with this psychiatrist who's played by a Swedish actor named Peter Stormare, who's actually in the original Fargo movie and Jurassic World. So he has some serious titles behind him, but he does such an amazing job of being a super creepy psychiatrist. He's asking you these questions. I don't think much of it, but he'll show you a picture and say, well, what scares you more in this picture? Is it the crow? Or is it the scarecrow? Um, and then you answer these questions based on, on your personal thoughts. And there's another part where he asks you, are you more afraid of clowns or, or scarecrows? Or are you more afraid of spiders or snakes? And you don't really think about it because of how bizarre and creepy it is. But after these questions are answered, they actually integrate your answers into the storyline. So if you're more afraid of clowns in these answers that you give to him, the villain appears as a clown. If you're more afraid of crows and scarecrows, it seems like every time you go to a new area, there's a crow flying off. So there's a huge amount of different gameplay aspects in that, that it tries to fine tune the horror element to the individual who is playing it. That sounds great. And I, I love Peter Stormare. Um, he was on the Blacklist last season. He was fantastic. He was also Nacho Libre, which I really liked him in that. But yeah, he's a fantastic actor. He plays creepy <laughs> characters really, really well. That sounds like a really cool game. Like a lot of really interesting game dynamics there. I like that with a lot of things game designers are doing. I think of like Life is Strange where you're, it's really, you have like the old star games. Like I play retro games a lot on my stream and they kind of have this feeling you just save all the time because you have to be able to go back and redo these choices like when you see the consequences. And I think to play it out a different way where you can't, where it's saved, where it's, it's saved, but you don't get to choose how it's saved. Once you make the choice, it's saved in there. I really like that. I think that's a really good mechanic. It makes you care more about the game. It makes you care more about the choices you're making because if you can just save and go back, you don't necessarily care as much. But when it's like, this is permanently affecting the game and how I play through the rest of the game, it, it, I think it... it sinks your interest into it because you care about what you're doing. You're like, well, you know, do I, how do I really feel about this? Instead of being like, ah, who cares? I side with them, I side with them. But when you're like, I'm stuck with this person for the rest of the game and they're not a character I cared about as much or they're not as helpful as one of the other characters might have been if I had chosen differently, I think that makes the game more real, more interesting. It's like no decisions are small decisions. Yeah. And you do get attached to certain characters and you hate the other ones. And I guess that's up to personal preference, but you are faced with really hard decisions that you don't want to make and I'm not going to give anything away that um, about that but it is very psychologically dramatic I will say my only my only complaint about it there was some unnecessary jump scares they just kind of throw them in <laughs> just to get you going and they did a bunch of that in the beginning and then it kind of dwindled near the end and it wasn't very scary for a horror not like 
you know, Resident Evil and, and of course, Amnesia. But other than that, I, I think the story was good and it made up for, for the, the lack of the scare. Thank you very much. I'm so glad. we. You're done. I'm done. We're all done with the we game. We all did a book of movie and a game. I have to count it up in my head because I get caught up. <laughs> I'm enjoying listening to Sarah so much that I forget what we've already done. So <laughs> yeah. thank you so much, Sarah. And Sarah's on Tumblr and she's a scrape. I know we talked about it at the beginning. We're going to put the link to her Tumblr in the notes where she yeah, does. Yeah, check There's... it out. It's 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 awesome. <laughs> and she's just in general a fun person. So I'm gl- so thank glad you. she can come today. As always, you can only get Russ here. You can't get him anywhere I'm else. I'm right here. <laughs> you can find me. I'm on Twitter at Jen the Glass. I'm on Twitch as Jen with Glasses. Please come check out. I stream retro games usually on Monday and Thursday nights. I might be adding another night to kind of see if people are interested. So come check it out. I play old RPGs and point and clicks and we have a really good time. I have a really good community of people there. Our chat is really fun. So please come check us out and we will see you next time on Book Movie Game. All right. Bye. See ya. Bye.